Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon from First Reformed Church in Edgerton, Minnesota. Each week, we dig into God's Word, trusting that the Holy Spirit will continue the good work of sanctification in us. If I were to ask you to make a list of what you think some of the most well-known, famous songs are, I think it's likely that as you drill down your list, you would probably put Amazing Grace maybe in your top five. I would think most assuredly it would probably end up in the top 10 because it is a tune that is, that is used and recognized even in context outside of the church. In fact, you've probably seen a movie or two or three or more that has used that tune in a funeral scene. In fact, I thought of, as I was considering this, I thought of two films right off the top of my head that used the tune during a funeral scene to, scene to invoke emotion in the viewers. And they both use bagpipes. In fact, I'm guessing maybe you might be thinking of the same things right now as I mention this. That's how well known the tune is. Now, I have in my office an assortment of different psalters, different settings of the psalms. I collect hymnals and I have a bunch. And I was thinking about this tune. Like normally when you sing the psalms, you use other tunes from hymns, right? So I went to the different psalters that I had. I think I have five or six. And only one of them bothered to use the tune from Amazing Grace for a setting of a psalm. Why is that? Because Amazing Grace is such an iconic song that if you were to hear it to other words, it would, it would mess with your head, right? That is the tune. Amazing Grace's tune is connected to those words for us deeply when it comes to our singing and our memory of it. And in fact, I would say most people probably know it really well. If we were here and we were having some sort of evening service and the lights went out as we started Amazing Grace, I'm confident we would sound fantastic a cappella through the first verse. I think everybody would get every word. I'm confident as well that a significant portion would do really well with the middle verses we could make it to the last verse. And I'm just as confident that when we got to when you've been there 10,000 years, we'd sound as good as the first verse. We know this song. We have it embedded in us. So, this song about grace is something we know very well. It speaks to the grace that Almighty God shows to his people. And as we express each week, as we gather to worship, this mercy shown to us in Christ, that's the only hope we've got. We trust solely in the grace of God for our salvation because we know that we don't have any righteousness within us on our own. The grace of God is the undeserved favor that God has shown to the people that he has brought to himself. Now, over the course of the next five weeks, I guess the next four weeks, because today is included, we're going to be having a series where we take a journey together, understanding better this amazing grace of God. And we're going to be looking at what is known as the doctrines of grace. So most people 
are familiar with the split that occurred in the 16th century between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestants. There was obviously a lot that happened with that to have this schism in the church, but we know the basics of the story. Martin Luther opposed the practices of the Roman Catholic Church, and he took a stand for what we know as the doctrine of justification by faith. Now, this is the understanding that you and I don't earn our salvation. We don't become saved because of the works that we do. Instead, salvation is a gift from God. And we receive this gift as the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we understand that we're declared righteous as though we've never sinned in the eyes of God because we are clothed not in our own righteousness, because we don't have any within ourselves, but we're clothed in the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is given to us as a gift, and and we receive this gift by faith, and we trust that this good news, that Jesus took on our flesh, lived a perfect life in our place, bore the wrath of God for our sin, and rose again to defeat sin, death, and hell. That is our understanding of why we receive this gift of his righteousness. And this is our understanding of how we're saved. And this rediscovery of the gospel message in the 16th century spread all throughout Europe. Well, by the time the 17th century came around, in the beginning of the 1600s, there was some controversy in the Reformed churches about what this looked like, about what grace and salvation how it happened, right? Did God appoint his people or elect his people to salvation or was humanity involved in the process? And so a group that was known as the Remonstrants who followed the teachings of someone by the name of Jacob Arminius, they came up with five points to emphasize human effort in salvation. Well, The response was to get a bunch of Reformed churches together in Dordrecht in the Netherlands, and they deliberated the teachings of the Remonstrants against Holy Scripture. So most of those present were primarily Dutch Reformed folks. That's our heritage, right? So we we can feel like these are our people, I guess. Uh, But there were also German and Swiss Reformed people present, along with delegates from England and Scotland as well. And so from this meeting came a document known as the Canons of Dort. And the teaching of this document, the teachings of this document, are commonly referred to as the five points of Calvinism. Or you may have heard them referred to as TULIP. You may know the acronym. So this acronym is TULIP. And I love acronyms because I don't remember things naturally, uh, just popping them off in my head. I have to hang my knowledge on hooks in my head so I, I know where to find them. It might be the only place I have things organized, actually. Uh, but it's an acronym, and so it talks about these five things, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. And so we refer to these things as the five points of Calvinism or the doctrines of grace. And so they help us to not only understand the biblical teaching on the grace of God, but they also keep us from error. And so after this very short history lesson I've just given you, I hope you've 
stayed with me here, you can understand why our series on understanding grace is five weeks. We're gonna be looking at those five points of the doctrines of grace. So, as I already mentioned, it's vital that we have an understanding of the grace of God because it not only tells us something important about the nature of God, but the grace of God also tells us something very important that we need to understand about ourselves. It informs not only our theology, our understanding of God, but it also understands how we understand man. This is very important because if I am in need of grace from God, then that tells me something. That tells me something about my condition. If I need grace, then my condition before God isn't something that I can remedy by myself. And so as we kick off this series this morning, we're going to be looking at that first point, commonly known as total depravity. So this doctrine says that humanity is deeply, deeply affected by sin. It makes us unable to save ourselves. And because this is the state of affairs for us, we need grace. And as I mentioned several weeks back, when we were looking at Psalm 53, this idea isn't just a doctrine that's only found in a verse or two of Scripture. Remember back to when we were in Psalm 53 several weeks ago, we saw this verse, they are, they're, they're corrupt, doing abominable iniquity, there is none who does good. We talked about how this is not just a doctrine that is found in a verse here or there, but this doctrine of original sin, of, of human depravity, is an overarching theme, and it's connected to what we read this morning in our Old Testament passage from Genesis 3. Because that is the pivotal historical moment that caused us to be totally depraved. That is the reason we need amazing grace. And Genesis 3 is a story we all know. God in his love created humans on the sixth day and all of creation was very good. He placed them in the garden and he made a covenant with them. Now, we didn't read the details of this covenant. It's in Genesis 2, uh, but we know them very well, and we can see them here. In this covenant, we read that their remaining in the garden was conditional. It was conditional upon their obedience to the command of God to refrain from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this command we see here, we know it. It's familiar to us. We not only know the command, but it's well known how the story went down afterwards. That story we read today, while you don't remember it word for word, it's important to read it every time because there are some details in the stories you, you maybe forget, but when I read it, you knew it. It's our story, it's the story of humanity. We know the serpent comes, the serpent tempts Eve, and then Adam eats of the fruit, and then the promise of death comes to the human race. Again, we're familiar with the command of God here in Genesis 2. But if we go back and think about the content of Holy Scripture up until this point of the fall, and you try and remove what we know already, you can't miss how striking a statement the last four words are here. You shall surely die. There's nothing like that in Scripture up to this point. We would never get the idea 
of that threat until it comes here. These are harsh words. There's no death in creation up to this point. It's very good. Death is a violent intrusion on God's very good creation. And it's because of what we read today in Genesis 3. But I want to be very clear about something. This intrusion of death is about more than the physical death that causes us to suffer and grieve in this life. There is spiritual death as well. When humanity fell into sin, we became incapable of pleasing God on our own because the fall was absolute. It was not a little decline or a detour off the path of us being perfect. It was a total fall. We are plunged into sin and death at the fall. And the Apostle Paul uses really helpful language to help us understand the extent of this at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2 when he describes the state of affairs for the people in Ephesus before they came to Christ. He says to them, before you came to Christ, you were dead in trespasses and sins. That is clear language for us. That's easy for us to understand. And as you have likely heard me say before, we have the idea that in our sin, we're sick. Or maybe we're in the need of a little bit of medicine to take care of us. That'll fix the problem. We think that perhaps we've fallen off the ship and we're in need of someone tossing us a life raft or a life ring. You don't really toss life rafts. Tossing us a life ring that we can grab a hold of that will keep us safe through the storms of life. But that's nothing like the way Scripture describes the state of affairs that we're in. We are dead in our sins. We don't need a life ring. Pardon the harsh imagery, but we're a rotting corpse at the bottom of the ocean in our sin. Without Christ, that is who we are. We don't need something to help us float. We need someone who is capable of diving to the bottom of the ocean and bringing our corpses up and giving us life. That's what we need. That is the state that we are in because of the fall. We are totally depraved. And again, this isn't just something I can jump to a few verses here and there to find. This is a message that is consistently found in Scripture, and it's in every type of literature in the Bible. It's present in the narrative portions of Scripture, not only in the story of the fall that we read, but in the way God ordains history to take place. He continues to tell this same story. Think back to when we were in Genesis and we were looking at the life of Abraham. What did I keep saying over and over about the story of Sarah and Abraham? While they were waiting for the child to promise to come, I said, we have to remember the story of Sarah and Abraham is not a comeback story. It's a resurrection story. Sarah's womb was not only barren, she was too old to bear a child. Her womb was dead. In order to keep the promise and to bring Isaac, God had to not only ordain that her womb would have a child, he had to bring it to life. 
And we also see this in the poetry of Scripture. Uh, We saw it already with that psalm that I brought up where the psalmist talks about the need for God in the midst of all of their sin. And the prophetic portions of Scripture show us the desperate need for God to rescue his people. And the Gospels also clearly let us know our need for a Savior as it tells the story of Jesus. And so do all of the epistles of Paul and the other authors of the New Testament. And in order to have an understanding of grace, we need to have an understanding of sin. And there may be no better place to help us grasp this than the culminations of Paul's arguments about human sinfulness that we read from the book of Romans today. Here we see that Paul is deliberate to point to us that, that in fact sin is a human problem. Because in the book of Romans, he starts out formulating an argument by pointing out the sin and the depravity not only in Gentiles, but in the Jews as well. And then in chapter 3, he drives this home by quoting from that line that I showed earlier in the book of Psalms, that there's none who are righteous, no, not one. This is a desperate state of affairs. And we have written this off far too easily in our modern time. We don't have a deep grasp of what sin has done to us. If our culture acknowledges the existence of sin at all, it would not say that it renders us incapable of reaching God. The idea would be that idea that I mentioned before, that idea of, oh, we just need God to throw us a life ring to help us figure out the problems in life. That's the, if we acknowledge sin at all, that would be our idea. And that shows that we aren't even in the ballpark of having a grasp of who God is. And so we don't understand who we are. God is holy. And we're creatures from the dirt who have rebelled against him. This is not a situation remedied by a few changes in our behavior here or there. What we need is a radical rescue because there isn't a one of us who has kept God's law perfectly. And our understanding of this doctrine of total depravity is shaped deeply by these verses that were quoted from the Psalms here in Romans. No one is righteous. No one seeks after God. And what does this mean? This means that the solution is not within us. We're the problem. We need an intervention from outside of us by the righteous God that we have offended. And as you've heard me likely say, or you've likely heard me say before, this is a theological truth that's verifiable. Original sin is on display everywhere, not only in Scripture, but in the world that we live in. We don't need to teach children to be rebellious, do we? It's not an acquired trait. We are born in sin, and it comes out in our actions and in the attitudes of our hearts. We see then why we are in need of amazing grace, this grace that God has given us in Christ. And both of the passages that we read from this morning display grace for us clearly. Our sin has separated us from God, yes, but God has done something to remedy the situation of our total depravity. And in our Old Testament passage, we saw once again the promise that we have looked at together so many times. 
God did not leave our first parents without hope after they rebelled against him. He promised that the one would come from the seed of the woman who would destroy the work of the serpent and restore humanity to favor with God. This is the promise that we see. God did not leave his fallen creation without hope. He promises a savior immediately in Genesis 3.15 that one will come and crush the head of the serpent. And this promise, right here in Genesis 3.15, is the story of the rest of Scripture, the waiting for Jesus, the one who would come, who would restore all things to right, who would save his people. And the good news about this prophecy, about this promise here, is that despite the circumstances created by a rebellious creation, God was faithful over and over, and in the fullness of time, the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised seed of the woman, was born in our very own flesh to bear the wrath of God for our sin. And our passage in Genesis reminded us of this promise And if you want to know more about that promise and the depth of it, you can go back and listen to our sermons from uh, the book of Genesis. They're, They're all available online. I don't want to spend too much time dwelling on this promise here today because we've talked about it before. But there is so much more we can draw out of this promise and out of the passage. We're going to go back to Romans here before we close up, though, to remind us of how the Word and Spirit use this doctrine of total depravity to drive us to Christ. Because we see here in this passage, the truth of our sin is exposed in us by the law of God. And look what it says it does here. It says it stops our mouths. It takes away any claims that we think we have that we're righteous before a holy God. Because we see that there is no work of the law that will cause us to be justified or declared righteous in the sight of God. No amount of good works and no amount of our following religious rituals will ever cause us to be seen as righteous before God. When the word of God comes to us and the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin and of our unbelief, what do we do? We abandon any hope that we have of saving ourselves because we understand that we do not have the ability to save ourselves on our own. And so we cry out. Our mouths are stopped at any claims of righteousness that we have, and instead we cry out in repentance and in faith, and we trust in the mercy that God has shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we consider what this means for you and I, I want us to think about what a blessing this is. We were born dead in sin. We had no capacity to turn to God on our own. We were blind and unable to see the truth. We were deaf and unable to hear his word. We were spiritually lame and unable to walk in righteousness. And our hearts were hard. They were stoned. But now, but now, they are hearts of flesh that believe the truth of the gospel. And this doctrine that tells us of human inability 
It could be perceived as depressing, right? Oh, total depravity, what a depressing doctrine. But the truth is that, that, is, that it is one doctrine that can cause us to rejoice because our mouths were stopped by the law and then the word, of the, the word of God came to us and he gave us eyes to see and ears to hear that we might be rescued from it. The law and the word of God came to us and gave us the gift of faith. We were rescued from this terrible state of affairs that we were plunged into by the sin of our first parents. And so, for an application for you and I, as we step out into the world this week, there are two things I want us to think about. We will see this doctrine of total depravity everywhere we go. Everywhere we go. We'll see it before we leave the house. We might see it before we get, a, get out of bed because it's in us, right? We're gonna see it everywhere. And so, when we see the fallen state of the world, may we rejoice in the salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus. May we look at this and say, this was who I was, but now because I understand this and have turned to Jesus, I have the joy of salvation in him. May that be the first thing that we do when we see this in the world. But also, may we be caused to pray to pray that God the Holy Spirit might quicken faith in the hearts of others, that we might proclaim the gospel, that they would hear and they would believe that not only may we rejoice in the salvation that we have, but that others might rejoice in this great rescue that we've been given. So as we look at the state of affairs in the world, may we remember the grace of God daily that we might rejoice in his great salvation that we have because of his amazing grace. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, we praise you for the gift of your word. And we praise you that the Holy Spirit comes to us as your people and convicts us of sin and unbelief. We pray, O oh Lord, that as we see the fallenness of the world, we would rejoice in the truth that you have given us the perfect righteousness of Christ. And may we rest on that daily and may the joy of our salvation open our mouths that we might proclaim the gospel that others might hear and believe through the working of your spirit. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon. For more information about First Reformed Church, head to our Facebook page or website, edgertonfrc.org.